the narrative and the conversation about ultra-processed foods, at least here in the UK, is being driven by elite white men mm-hmm. in food. Yeah. Like they're not scientists necessarily. They're not researchers. They're not even reporters mm-hmm. a lot of the time. They're just like food guys. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. And today it is time for Ultra Processed Foods Part 2. I am once again chatting with Laura Thomas, PhD, a registered nutritionist who specializes in responsive feeding and anti-diet body-affirming nutrition. Laura runs the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter and podcast on Substack. You should be subscribed if you aren't already. And she's the author of two books, Just Eat It and How to Just Eat It. So in case you missed episode 101, which dropped last week, that was our big deep dive into the current state of research on ultra-processed foods and the larger cultural conversation happening about this right now. So if you have questions about like what is an ultra-processed food and why is it both Doritos and yogurt, go back and listen to that one. Today we're going to get a little more granular. I'm asking Laura all the nitty-gritty questions that you folks sent in about navigating ultra-processed foods in your own diet, in your family life, feeding your kids, all of that, and we are going to unpack so much. So here is Laura, but first, a quick break. If you like the conversations we have here and want to support the show, I'd love for you to do one or all of the following things. First, make sure to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast player. This way, you will never miss an episode. Second, rate or review the podcast to help other folks find it. Just scroll down in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, tap the stars, and leave us a little note. We like five stars, please, and lots of butter. Third, subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's free and gets you every podcast transcript, plus all of my essays and reported features, right in your inbox. If you want even more, become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get lots of bonus content, you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space, and you enable us to compensate podcast guests for their time and labor, which is key to centering marginalized voices in this space. You can join the list for free or check out the paid options by clicking the link in your episode description or head to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Whatever you do, thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism. Okay, so we're going to dive into some of the questions that came in, and Laura's going to help us think through some of this a little more. So, okay, can our bodies really differentiate between ultra-processed foods and less processed foods? It just depends. Yeah. Because, like, okay, I could go to the store and buy, like, some shop-bought cookies, right? They would be considered ultra-processed. Mm-hmm. I could bake virtually the same cookies at home and they would be called processed cookies. Mm -hmm. But the way that my body responds is probably fairly similarly. Right. It's a cookie to your body. So I think some of the pushback around ultra processed food coming from within the nutrition community is that the, the label of ultra processed food doesn't tell us anything about the qualities of that food necessarily that can't be explained by more traditional, shall we say, 
metrics that we would use within nutrition. So I'm thinking about things like energy density, intrinsic fiber, glycemic load, mm-hmm. and added sugar, right? All these like tools that we already have to determine how our body will respond to something can just as easily tell us like how our bodies will respond to right. food rather than so the, I don't think there's anything special about ultra processed food in and of itself. If like a food has lower fiber, regardless of whether it was made in a factory made, or made in our house, it's going to respond slightly differently in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's more about like the overall properties of a food rather than where it's processed. Your body is not like, this is a Frito-Lay product and I can tell. So I'm having a different reaction. Like, no, but it can also say like, it can be like, well, this is an apple and therefore it's actually not going to provide me enough sustenance right. to keep going. Right. So yeah, it can differentiate. We have like receptor cells in, in our gastrointestinal tract that tell us about the nutrient density of the food. Mm-hmm. And spoiler, if you're not eating enough food, it's going to send that feedback right. and it's going to start pumping out more hormones that ramp up your appetite because you right. haven't eaten enough. Right. So our bodies, like they can tell foods apart. Yeah. To some extent, but that's not like exclusively processed versus ultra-processed right. food. Right, right. That's probably the thing they're least focused on in a way. Yeah. It's like, is this meeting my needs? Okay. Any links that you've come across in your research between ultra-processed foods and mental health? Yeah. So this is something that I didn't go into specifically. It's something that I kind of like tangentially read around. Mm-hmm. And again... I would come back to what we were talking about earlier in that mental health is so multifaceted that it's really difficult to tease apart what is the effect of our diet versus what is the effect of, you know, like some of these other variables that mean that we are eating an ultra processed food diet in the first place. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, because we're having to work three jobs to make hands meet mm-hmm. and we don't, yeah, we don't have time to cook a meal from scratch. Both of those things independently could have an impact on your mental health. Right. But it wouldn't be because you're eating the ultra processed food that you have the mental health outcome. It might be because you're like having poor sleep or, mm-hmm. and I'm conscious here, I don't want to put all the, like the narrative is that we're sort of to blame for our mental health mm-hmm. as well, when we need to be really conscious of these broader structural influences yeah. over mental health. Super yeah. important. Okay. This person writes, I have a kiddo with ARFID and almost all safe foods would be considered ultra processed foods. How much is too much of a single ultra processed food? It's really hard to say without having more of a sense of what they're actually eating and have a bit more information there. But what I would say is that kids with ARFID can do really well with a fairly limited diet. Mm-hmm. I would always get it checked out with a pediatric dietitian, preferably one who specializes in responsive feeding so that you can check for any gaps. I think the thing when it comes to kids who are neurodivergent or had feeding differences is that their diets are never going to look like typical eaters, right? right. And so there are going to have to be accommodations made for that. And I think there's a little bit of grief bound up in that for parents, but those kids need accommodations and acceptance rather than stigma and being coerced or forced into feeding therapies that might actually cause more trauma and more harm. 
So I know you did an episode with Noreen Hunani, and she is like the go-to person when it yeah. comes to feeding neurodivergent kids. So yeah, go listen to that. Yes. But I think <laughs> you can do well on a fairly limited diet. And if you're worried, like get it checked out with a pediatric dietitian who can help you plug any gaps with supplements. Yeah. And then think about a responsive plan for introducing new foods as and when, you know, and that has to be child-led as well. I will just also add, I don't have a child with ARFID, but I do have a child with fairly significant feeding differences. And I have learned through trial and error, anytime we get hung up, because there are definitely times where it's like, there is one food that is making up most of the meals. And anytime we get overly hung up on that food as the problem, we only add to the stress of that dynamic and kind of push her further from us. And yeah risk making her feel incapable in some way that's not helpful. So I think my solution as a parent in this has usually been to really make peace and embrace whatever the food is and make that our starting point and then think about what can we add on? How can we make them feel like they have access to this food that is the safe food that feels really important to have? And how can we add on to that versus worrying about limiting or creating guardrails around that food? Yeah, that felt safety piece is so important. So important. Okay, next reader question. How much should we worry about added sugars in things like bread, pasta sauce, etc.? So I think this is like drilling into that gray area of the ultra processed food category where these are the foods we do really rely on. And then we get worried about what the ultra processing might be doing to them. I think this is tricky. I'm also writing about sugar a lot at the moment right now. And so like it's the convergence of these two things in my head. (laughs) Because I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with picking like a lower sugar pasta sauce or lower salt, provided that like you're not stressing about it and it's not impacting like the taste or flavor and you enjoy it. And Mm -hmm. you know, like for example, if I'm going to be making like a sauce out of a peanut butter, I might choose the one that doesn't have added sugar or salt in it because I'm going to be adding stuff Mm. anyway. And you want to control the flavor. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm straight up eating it, I'm like, yeah, I'll have the Jif or whatever, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with like looking at that if that doesn't stress you out. If you're like newer to intuitive eating and that is going to be a bit of a head fuck, then Mm -hmm. leave it alone. I can't speak to the US, but in the UK, they did a really interesting study where they compared ready prepared supermarket foods with recipes that were made at home using like cookbooks written by chefs, like by chefy guy type people, like mm-hmm. Jamie Oliver and people like that. And they found that the things that were bought in stores were lower in things like salt and saturated fat and higher in fiber than some of the things that we made at home. Wow. It's a plot twist. Jamie Oliver did not love that, I bet. Well, we do not love Jamie Oliver. So <laughs> no, we do not. That's, <laughs> it's a whole other podcast episode. Though. So what I would say is that I think pressure on the food industry to up the nutrition standards of foods like these common everyday foods, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing and might overall contribute to the well-being of 
you know, population well-being without us each individually having to micromanage our own food and like worry too much about the minutiae. Certainly in the UK, a lot of food companies are responding to that. So yeah, I don't worry too much about that. What about you? What are your thoughts on that? I see you like I thinking never, way over there. I never <laughs> think about it at all. I was actually like thinking about what I buy and I was like, I have no idea. I honestly <laughs> don't read nutrition labels ever. I don't find it useful to me. I think about how foods taste. I'm feeding a family where several people are fairly rigid about their brands. So if it was lower sugar or more sugar, like it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it just wouldn't, it, you know, it wouldn't be the thing that could decide it for me. I had stages in my life where I thought a lot more about it and it was always a gateway to restrictive thinking. So for me, it's much more helpful to just think about what I want to be eating and the flavor combination. And yeah, I may eat something and notice, oh, this tastes sweeter than I enjoy. But I don't yeah. then look to see how much added sugar is in it. I'm just like, oh, I would make yeah, this. Yeah, and I don't, from a nutrition perspective, recommend that like we get hung up on the minutia of detail. And so, yeah, if that doesn't feel good for you, like definitely yeah. not. But if you're in more of a sort of like gentle nutrition place, mm-hmm. then that might, especially if you are managing a chronic condition where you have to think about these things. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want to be dismissive of that. Yeah, I think my approach to dental nutrition is thinking about foods that sound good and overall variety versus drilling into the numbers that may not work for everybody, may not meet your needs. The other piece of it for me is if you are not in a restrictive mindset around these foods, then it kind of doesn't matter what the numbers on them are because you're both not restricting them and not eating, quote, too much of them with all of the caveats around the concept of too much. Do you know what I mean? There's not anything in my house where I'm like, well, this is all I eat. So it's really important that I understand what it contains because I'm eating a lot of different things. Yeah, I think you're overall like getting some variety, whatever that looks like for you then we don't have to worry about these things in like specific detail. This person wrote, what is the difference between ultra processed foods and processed foods? Is it just a health halo, but they are still convenience foods? Which says to me that this person is now worrying about the entire category or really both category three and four, according to the NOVA Mm -hmm. system and worrying that the less processed foods are also under a health halo and somehow should be avoided. I don't know. Maybe I'm misreading the way they wrote this question. What do you think? Well, I wonder if they are using the colloquial understanding of processed versus the sort of like the Nova nomenclature. Right. Whereby everything is processed, right? Like everything that you eat from scratch is processed. So yeah, that's what I wonder is if some of the confusion was coming from there. But it also sounds like they're wondering like, okay, well, the just processed foods, the bread or the pasta sauce or what have you, is it just a health halo? But it's still like, I think I'm picking up on like a negative framing of the idea of convenience foods here. Okay. So like things that might be classified because like the pasta sauce and like bread that you buy from the supermarket be ultra processed Mm -hmm. in that category. Right. And so you're thinking the fear is around those foods specifically? Yeah, she's saying, is it just a health halo, but they are still really convenience foods, is I think how she's saying it. And I guess my take is like, oh, it's fine if they're convenience foods. (laughs) That doesn't make them bad foods. No, 
cutting down on labor and time and all of the things that's to me a really valuable thing and I think like convenience is not synonymous with like I don't know it's gonna cause cancer or whatever it is that they're thinking about it's making me think too the health halo concept is one that comes up a lot where people mm-hmm. are using it to expose, like, here's a product that's marketed as very healthy, but actually it's not healthy, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. the concept of the health halo, that this is yes. a food that's saying it's low in cholesterol. It's also just often misleading. Like, they'll put low in cholesterol on bananas, and you're like, but they, whoever thought they were high mm-hmm. in cholesterol? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like the gluten-free water. Exactly. And so... You're right that it's a misleading health claim, but it doesn't actually mean that the food is unhealthy. It just means they're overstating certain aspects of it. So where I get frustrated with health halos is, like you say, not because they're inherently good or bad foods or healthy or unhealthy or whatever it is. It's because it's the manipulation from the food industry that annoys me. It's like Mm -hmm. I'm being marketed to and I don't like that. I don't want that. And I feel like it's, it can be exploitative, you know, in that like, yeah, like water doesn't have gluten in it anyway, but now you're probably like putting a premium on it. So I think it's like where it can be. The other place that I see health halos is like with veggie straws with Mm. kids. Yeah. A lot of kid foods. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of kid foods. And it's not that there's anything wrong with those foods, but like they're just chips. Let's just call it spade. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay. So the next question is, what is the impact of ultra processed foods on A1C and cholesterol? I truly believe that all foods fit, but I have to watch both of those numbers. So I, I didn't research this specifically, but there was an interesting study that they did at the National Institutes of Health Virginia and my best friend, Kevin Hall's <laughs> study, <laughs> where they did a randomized control trial. It was only over two weeks, but they compared a group of people, I think it was 20 people, maybe total. So maybe 10 people on an ultra processed foods diet and 10 people on unprocessed diet. So they're eating a lot of salads and stuff like that. And then they crossed them over and then they, you like they swapped diets for two weeks. And they looked at certain biomarkers from people who, after each arm of the trial. And one thing that I remember that they found is that there was no difference in blood glucose response between the two diets. So an ultra processed versus Mm -hmm. a processed food diet. Now there's kind of a caveat because in the ultra processed food diet, they did supplement with fiber supplements, which we know will help level out blood glucose levels. Mm. So like, we don't know exactly, but if you are overall getting like a decent amount of fiber, if you're combining, you know, foods that you know are going to affect your blood glucose level, like foods that are higher in carbohydrates with like some fat and protein, again, thinking about that, like gentle nutrition aspect of things, then I think you're going to be absolutely fine. But overall, what I would say when it comes to blood glucose management is like stress is one of the worst things. Yeah, yeah. So if you are stressing about the minutia of detail about your food, I think it's worth taking a step back, maybe working with an anti-diet nutritionist or dietitian if 
if you can access that. Mm -hmm. I also put together a guide to managing a whole different bunch of health conditions, including a high blood glucose. We will link to that. That sounds super helpful. I think your larger point about like, and we've said this over and over, like anytime you're worried about this categories of foods impact on a specific aspect of your health, you're probably missing a larger picture yeah. discussion. Let's say you're missing it, but there's a lot of added stress of worrying so much about this one piece of the puzzle is not necessarily yeah. going to help with the overall puzzle. I think that's really, yeah. help, really helpful to say. Okay, the last question, which I really love, is what's the most useful thing you have learned in all of the incredibly extensive research you have done on this topic? This is not a fact because it's just my subjective opinion, but like reading that statement from Carlos Montiero about like the role of ultra-processed foods in like that being the undoing of family meals just kind of blew my mind. I'll and never just felt stop so... being mad. I'll never stop being mad about <laughs> it, Laura. <laughs> it was so anti-science. And so like, just here's my like opinion, like filtered through this. Like, I want to really... know how many children he has and how many nights a week he cooks dinner for right. them. That's all right. I want to know. And who how many is of them doing... have feeding differences? Yeah. And... <laughs> who like... is doing the labor of food in his household? Because I don't believe it is Carlos. Yeah. So that was like pretty startling to me. But I think, yeah, just thinking again about the huge sweeping sentiments in the way that ultra processed foods are reported. Like one of the titles was in this like big piece in the Times in the UK was that Britain's diet is more deadly than COVID. Oh my Lord. And I was like, the Times fact checker was not in that. <sighs> no, they did not use a fact checker for that statement. And yeah, and I think the other thing that I found really upsetting, this is the last one I promise, is that the narrative and the conversation about ultra processed foods, at least here in the UK, is being driven by elite white men mm -hmm. in food. Yeah. Like they're not scientists necessarily. They're not researchers. They're not even reporters mm -hmm. a lot of the time. They're just like food guys. And there's mm -hmm. like this one doctor guy. But even then, there's a lot of conjecture and a lot of hyperbole in the way that it's being talked about. And what frightens me more than anything is how these people are the people that we are entrusting reimagining the food system too. Yeah. And I think it's really scary that we're reimagining the food system in the mind of a privileged white guy. This is Sam Cass, who was the Obama's private chef, who then drove Let's Move and Michelle Obama's entire fight against childhood obesity was all originated from her conversations with her thin white guy, foodie friend yeah. slash chef. And yeah, that's where a lot of this starts. So, all right, Laura, that was amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through all of this. As you know, we end every episode with butter. So what is your butter this time for us? All right, so this time I have Party Bar. So Party Bar is like a group fitness class that I've been going to, which usually hard pass. But this class, it's bar class. Since having my kid, I have a lot of pelvic stuff, like pelvic girdle pain still. So mm -hmm. like bar is like one of the things that so helpful. is helpful. But like doing it at home in my living room was feeling like a little inauspicious. 
So <laughs> I found this class, it's local, where they, like it's party vibes for the whole class. They explicitly say on their website, like no body talk, no <sighs> like, you know, like no you've got to burn this and turn this and like none yeah, of yeah. that kind none of, of that. verbiage. And they put out like string like party lights that they put out like disco lights, turn the lights down and they play like the best music. So it's every week it's themed. Some weeks it's like Britney versus Justin. <gasps> Last night it was like 90s boy bands. Oh my like, gosh. It's always like just really fun. It's like a little more intense than I would like. But yeah, yeah you can just kind of do your own thing and... Yeah, it's super fun. So party uh, bar, highly recommend if you're in East London. I am jealous and would like a party bar to come to the Hudson Valley. That sounds delightful. <laughs> All right. My butter is just a classic summer butter, which is going to the local ice cream place with my kids. And like we all have our flavors and we, mm. you know, look forward to it. Like we go once or twice a week. And we've leveled up this year. Our dog, we have this kind of insane pandemic puppy who's now three and a half and finally becoming manageable. And she can now come with us to the ice cream place because we sit outside and she gets a vanilla cone and she's the happiest creature on the planet. And it's just like really fun. And last weekend, my best friend Amy was visiting and we took the kids twice and we brought the dog with us one of the times. And I was like, this is great. And just in the context of our whole conversation here, Ice cream is an ultra processed food, right? And the joy and connection we all feel having this ritual around our summer ice cream visits is, I think, incredibly good for all of our health in just so many ways. So it is. It's so healing. And like they do not do ice cream bars quite like they do in the States Mm -hmm. over here. But there's like a place that I used to go to when I lived in Ithaca, similar vibes. It was just very like, wholesome yeah picnic tables and yeah. everyone's getting and also I feel like you've reached the apex of parenting like I'm still at the stage where Avery will like eat all the chocolate on the outside of a magnum and then just toss the ice cream mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> dude yeah when did we get to the good part where oh, you just sit and eat a bowl of ice cream I should say straight out like taking little kids for ice cream is actually not a joyful experience to me like the amount of wet wipes you have to bring <laughs> I mean we did it because I loved ice cream but I have so many pictures of my kids just like covered head to toe and yes. melted chocolate and it's just a mess so if that's where you are it's totally fine to just bookmark this idea for a few summers from now <laughs> it's like just go on the date night to get your ice cream and don't take your toddler it's fine not because they can't have ice cream but because it will be stressful for you. We will just have it at home from the tub. But now that we have leveled up to five and nine and the dog can come too, it is like a really fun. You're living the dream, man. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Laura, thank you. This was awesome. I love talking to you. Come back anytime, please. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review. These really help folks find the podcast and help us grow. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You'll get a ton of cool perks and you'll keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the underscore Soul Smith. 
Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.